The title of my sermon today is Body Issues. It's, I admit, an intentionally provocative title. We'll be talking today about the resurrection of the body, but by using the title Body Issues, I'm intentionally raising a broader issue, the, the idea, the reality that many of us don't like our bodies. This week as I was walking around the church, you know, we put the, we put the title of the sermon on the signboard, and as I was walking around, I saw a lot of people noticing the title on the signboard, and my guess is that just reading that title, Body Issues, was thought-provoking for many people, because I've never met a person in my entire life who doesn't have issues with their body. There are at least a couple of reasons for this. Part of it is, is the simple reality that we are mortal, we get sick, we age, and so all of us must face the reality that our bodies will degrade over time. I think that's the first reason we have body issues. But especially in our culture, it goes much farther than this because every person I've ever met also wishes their body looked different. There was a study recently that asked women which quality mattered most in determining their self-esteem. They listed factors like faith, family, school, career. 63% of women said that the number one factor determining their self-esteem is their weight. And here's the really sad part. I'll bet that's not surprising at all for any of us. Because we all know how much people are at war with their bodies. And so today we're going to talk about the body in Christian thought. Specifically, we're going to talk about this strange idea that when Christ was raised, it was a physical resurrection. He didn't come back as an angel or a ghost or a disembodied spirit. He came back as a person with a body, with hair and skin, and even as we will see, with a digestive system. Let's turn to that reading. This is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 42. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving, both to us and through us as your people. Amen. I'd like to make three points today. Number one, why the human body is important. Number two, why we are at war with our bodies. And number three, how we might begin to heal our relationships with our bodies Number one, why the human body is important. Every time we say the Apostles' Creed, all of us say the following line, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
I'll bet every person in this room has said this multiple times. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And yet in practice, very few Christians think much about this. In fact, most of us assume an idea that comes more from Greek philosophy than it does from Christian tradition. It's called dualism. It means that the soul and the body are totally separate. The soul is pure, the body is corrupt, and when the body dies, the soul is finally liberated from the body. And this is a good thing because the physical world, so thought the Greeks, is not very important. It's the immaterial soul that matters. But scripture has a totally different view. The Bible from the very beginning says creation is good. God created the world and called it good. How did God create human beings? From the dust of this good earth. And then he breathed into him his own life. We are literally part of the material world. Joni Mitchell famously sang, we are stardust. That's not a metaphor. The elements that make up the human body were literally formed in the explosion of stars billions of years ago. We are stardust. If you look at nature for any length of time, you will be amazed at how miraculous and complex it is. And yet, of course, we also know that life is full of suffering. Christians explain this with the idea of the fall, that this endlessly good world became full of sin. And yet we also believe that one day creation will be restored. There is a word for that restoration. The word is shalom. It's a very important word. It's often translated as peace, but in the Old Testament, it means a lot more than just peace. It means a world that has been restored into the way it's supposed to be. A world in which all of creation has harmony and health and flourishing. Now, here's what's so interesting. When Christ appears... In this story, in a resurrected body, the first word out of his mouth is shalom. Meaning, look at this body. This is what restored creation look like, looks like. And of course, this is one day what we will all experience because as Paul said, Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of what all of resurrection will look like. Now here's the point. That resurrection will not be a bunch of disembodied souls. It will be physical. In this story, Christ goes out of his way to tell the disciples that this is a physical reality. He says, look at my hands and and my feet. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he raises the stakes even more. He says, you know what? Do you have something to eat here? And then he takes a piece of fish and he eats it in their presence. It's almost like he's trying everything he can possibly do to get them to understand this is a physical resurrection. God is not giving up on the world because it's evil. The resurrection is God loving this world so much that he recreates it. He takes the same elements, the same stardust, and he breathes life into them once again. Obviously, when we're talking about the resurrection of the body, we're talking about something that is utterly mysterious. So I'll just give you one image that I think is lovely. St. Augustine said that the day of resurrection is like God sitting at the potter's wheel. He takes the clay of our old bodies, he dips it in water, 
and then he puts those elements back on the wheel and he spins a new jar. And those are our new bodies made by the same elements that went into our old bodies but now given new life. The point again is that you are not a disembodied soul, you're an embodied soul. Now, in case this is still confusing, and I think it should be, let me give you a few examples of what this connection between the body and the soul looks like. Let's talk about moments in which your soul is deeply inspired. I think what you'll find is that it always involves the physical world. So let's say you are enchanted by a wonderful piece of music. You feel it deep down in your soul. What is actually happening? Something physical. Sound waves are entering your ear and they're vibrating against your eardrum. You feel it in your soul, but it's happening in your body. What happens when you eat an exquisite meal? It's happening in your body, but you feel it in your soul. When you embraced a loved one, it happens on your skin and your muscles, but you feel it in your soul. You get the idea. Our souls are forever linked to our bodies. And so even if our souls leave one body when we die, scripture says they get another one because this is what eternal, looks, eternal life looks like. It's an embodied reality because God cares about this world. Let's move to point number two. Why then, if all of this is true, why are we at war with our bodies? Well, let me ask you to do a quick thought experiment. Imagine standing in front of a mirror, looking at your body. You are naked. What do you see? Do you see the miracle that your body is? These billions of cells, each containing strings of the language of DNA, each working flawlessly and unconsciously outside of your awareness to sustain your life? Or do you look at your body and judge it? I wish I was thinner. I wish I had more hair. I wish I had bigger muscles. I wish I had fewer wrinkles. What I'd like to suggest is that we get our bodies precisely wrong We love our bodies for the wrong reasons and we hate our bodies for the wrong reasons. And in order to understand what I'm talking about, let me remind you of what sin is. Sin in its essence is putting yourself instead of God at the center of your life. And that matters when it comes to the body because depending on whether God is at the center of your life, you will have a totally different relationship to your body. If you put God at the center of your life, then your body is simply the way in which you experience this amazing world. You are grateful to have a body because if you didn't, you couldn't do anything. All the things that God calls you to do, to love others, to worship him, to pray, to heal the world, these require a body. And so the body is not more or less than the vehicle that our souls embody. Our bodies always point to God, of course, who created them in the first place. However, if you don't put God at the center, then your relationship to your body is going to be much different. And suddenly, beauty, physical beauty, is going to become very important because your value in this life depends on your physical appearance. Your self-esteem depends on whether you are thin or have hair or have muscles. Your self-esteem depends on how beautiful other people think you are. But that's a very fragile place to be because guess what? 
bodies change. We age. Bodies grow weak with time. And so if your physical appearance is entirely if you, the basis of your self-esteem, you're going to be at war with your body. And look around. This is the sickness in our culture, isn't it? Everywhere you look, there are images of perfect bodies that nobody can live up to, and our children are getting the message that if they don't look a certain way, they have no value. It is a real problem, and therefore we have to talk about how we might heal our relationships to our bodies. That's point number three, to understand how we might become at peace with our bodies. We need to talk again about what's going on for these disciples who just watched Jesus die. We touched on this last week, that the only way to really understand crucifixion is through the lens of trauma. Even the Romans admitted this. The word crucifixion, cruciare in the Latin, literally means torture. The philosopher Cicero said this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him is almost an act of murder, but to crucify him, there are no words that can possibly describe such a horrible deed. And that was a Roman writing that. Imagine how it felt for the Jews and the foreigners who were the ones who were crucified. There are no words to describe what it's like to watch a loved one brutalized like this. Why do you think the Romans did this to bodies? Why did they strip them naked and flog them and nail them to crosses to slowly die in unimaginable pain and then leave the bodies there in public so that over the next few weeks they would be slowly eaten by birds? Why did they do that? because even they knew that the body and soul are one. That if you want to kill a person's soul, if you want to erase their very identity, then you do terrible things to their body. And of course, anyone here who has been physically abused or neglected knows that we hold that trauma and that pain in the very cells of our bodies. I've been reading this wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score. I mentioned this last week. It's by a psychologist who has been working with trauma victims for many decades, and it's a perfect title because what psychologists are increasingly aware of is that this title is exactly right. Our bodies keep score of what's happening in our souls. When we are overwhelmed or stressed or traumatized, our bodies are the things that hold on to all of this. And over time, we begin to develop physical symptoms, and therefore, to heal from these things, we have to re-engage our bodies. Healing happens from the bottom up through our bodies. And now I'll let you in on a powerful secret. Worship is one of the ways that we do this. Because in worship, we use our bodies. We stand and we sit. And every week we sing the same beautiful songs that we've been singing for hundreds of years. We shake hands, we meditate, we pray, we sing hymns. And I have to tell you that standing up here, I can literally feel the sound waves from this wonderful organ and from your wonderful voices, and it is powerfully healing. But the most powerful healing in worship 
comes directly from Christ himself. It's when we take communion, and I'm gonna talk more about that in just a moment, but I wanna get back to our story because when Jesus appears in the room, he has a body that has been restored. This embodied soul that was utterly terrorized is ironically now the one who is offering peace to the disciples. He is no longer a victim. This man who has been traumatized, he comes to them saying, Shalom. And in his physical presence, they too are healed. It it seems to happen almost immediately. First, we read that they are terrified. A moment later, we read that they are filled with joy. The suggestion is that the resurrected Lord who has a trauma-healed physical body can heal their embodied souls and also ours. Here's the way that happens. We take his healed body into our own. Isn't that what communion means? The words that we recite every time we take communion are words from Christ who says, this is my body. Take it and eat it. Take it into you. Take my healed body into your body. Communion is bringing Christ's body into the very cells that our souls inhabit, knowing that what happens in our bodies affects our souls. Now, I want to end by talking about what a healed body looks like. Some people might think that for trauma to be healed, it must simply be erased from the body and erased from memory, but this is not the case. We touched on this last week. The most amazing thing about Christ's resurrected body is that it has nail marks on it. He is raised, he is healed, he is shalom himself, and yet on his body there are scars. And I think this is what healing looks like. Healing doesn't mean you forget the past, it means you overcome it. And the scars are good because the scars witness to the healing power of God. What is the most beautiful body possible? It's not some flawless model. It's a body that's filled with scars because that body testifies to the healing power of God. When you meet someone who has overcome trauma, they always have nail marks, don't they? Some are on the inside, some are on the outside, but they all have scars because their wounds have been healed. And I imagine that this is what we'll all look like on the day of resurrection. We'll have new bodies, but those bodies will have a lot of scars because the wounds that we have suffered will have all been healed by Christ. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for restoring us in Christ. As we take his body and blood into the cells of our bodies, we pray that these very cells within us would rejoice in his name. Amen.